welcome to the Stalk and I podcast for solo parents and those considering solo parenthood by donor conception. I'm your host, Mel Johnson, the solo parenthood coach and solo mum to my four-year-old daughter. Series five of the podcast is dedicated to donor conception. I speak to a range of donor-conceived people as well as experts on donor conception to cover a range of topics on this haven't yet seen them you can catch up on the first two thriving solo live events the first one with natasha fox who's a donor conceived adult is available now where she shares her experiences of growing up as a solo parent family and a donor conceived adult with a sperm donor the second event is with liv thorne aka lives alone who discusses her new book as part of our thriving solo book club as well as sharing really relatable experiences of being a solo parent and the journey that led up to that. Both of them have received some really great feedback, so I really encourage you to go and check them out. We also have some amazing events coming up. One of the most popular events is actually with today's guest, Julianne from Parenthood in Mind. We'll be running an event together exploring how to respond if or when your donor-conceived child tells you they wish they had a daddy. It's one not to miss. You can check out how to join at the link in the show notes. On today's episode, I chat to Julianne from Parenthood in Mind. Julianne is the clinical director and founder of the Parenthood in Mind practice. She's a passionate and highly experienced perinatal psychologist who has worked for over 15 years in the NHS and private practice with parents and parents-to-be, as well as their babies and bumps, who have needed support with a wide variety of issues. She works across the entire journey and also has experience working with solo mums. I often recommend people to Julianne's practice if they need to go into more counselling. So without further ado, let's hear from Julianne. Julianne, welcome to the Stalk and I podcast. Thank you so much for being a guest today. Thank you. Thank you so much for asking me. Brilliant. So before we get into the questions that I've got, would you like to give yourself a bit of an introduction just about who you are and um, your experience on this topic would be great to hear. Yeah, sure. Um, So my name is Julianne Boutaleb. I'm a consultant perinatal psychologist. And what that means is that I'm a specialist in working with um, parents, parents parents-to-be, their bumps and babies from sort of trying to conceive all the way through to one year post-birth. Um, I've worked since as one in the NHS and then about five years ago I left the NHS to set up a specialist practice called Parenthood in Mind and we're there's 18 of us now um, spread throughout the UK and we specialise in working with as I say parents and parents-to-be from sort of the moment where they parents and possibly you know have to look again as to how they're going to do that it might be around fertility diagnosis, or again, it might be what you know we're going to speak about today, where perhaps their path to parenthood is slightly different from what they imagined it would be. So that's an area of specialism that we look to. Brilliant. And I think um, I came across you, Julianne, because um, I was saying that probably about 85% of the people that come to speak to me, coaching is perfect for. But um, there are instances where I think coaching has reached its maximum and it and it might be useful or helpful for people to speak to a qualified counsellor like in what instance do you think it would be useful for people to speak to a counsellor 
Okay, so the thing is that we come in here in, in different ways. So it might be that, um, so for example, I recently seen a solo gay mom and she's going to go to Norway to conceive and the Norwegian system and the clinic she's going to needs a psychological assessment. So that might be one way, for example, that we um, are involved around implications counselling, really thinking with you around the implications of this. And some clinics are particularly interested um, as are, for example, adoption agencies around former mental health. If you have been to see a counsellor or a therapist or indeed a psychologist like myself, those sorts of things might be something that you'd um, want to think through with someone like me. So that's one sort of area of specialism. The other is where, and I think we're going to talk about this today, um, given the questions you've sent through to me, is where, of course, and, and this is a given, becoming a parent or trying to become a parent, of course, throws us back into our own experiences of being parent, um, being parented. And some of that, you know, we have to be honest, is, is not always, you know, um, something that we want to carry through into our own parenting. And so it might be that some of these issues have brought up earlier feelings around, um, you know, failure or being the odd one out in our family. And we've seen our siblings, you know, meet partners, settle down and, and have babies in the sort of, um, societally, you know, until recently, a more accepted way of becoming a parent and a mother. So that might throw up earlier issues around, you know, depression, anxiety, stress, and those things, as you say, it's really important if we can recognize them now, because of course, if we don't, we of course then carry them with us into our experiences of, of being solo parents, solo mothers. So that might also be where we, um, where we come into the frame and then there's more complex issues such as um, and again this is often the, the way um, women in particular and men might come to the idea of being a solo parent where there's been um, a relationship breakdown for example and whilst we know that we want to still carry on down the route of perhaps using embryos you know that we have um, in, in storage or perhaps you know, um, wanting to try um, to think about the route to solo parenthood ourselves. We know that we're not in the right place yet. We have to think through some of these losses and some of these um, griefs, yeah, before we get to that place. And that's also where we might come in. So hopefully that explains a sort of a typical range of people that might come through the practice looking for something a little bit more than coaching yeah really helpful thank you and I think yeah leads us really nicely on because I think one of the things that I definitely see having coached hundreds of people going through this journey is letting go of the idea of how you thought you'd be a parent now some people find it really easy but so many people don't um, and it's been so deeply embedded in them about how they thought they would be a parent that it's so difficult for them to let go of that and I think sometimes they don't even realize it um, you know they, they haven't got to the bottom of it they just know that they're really struggling to come to terms with this yeah. is, is that something that you see yeah it's very very common so you'll know a little bit about um, some of the things that I put out on social media and, and one of my key things is what we call a psychologist's um, generative loss of generative identity, but I've reframed it as the reproductive story. 
And it's that story we have. And, you know, we see our children acting it out often when they're little, about being mummies and daddies and even going as far as breastfeeding our babies, having very clear thoughts about how many children we're going to have, how many of each we're going to have, um, how we're going to be as parents. And, and this all forming a sort of an unconscious reproductive story. And it's often only when that reproductive story isn't panning out the way that we'd expected that we realize that we're carrying this expectation. So often I'll have people in front of me saying, but this really wasn't how it was supposed to be. You know, I've been in a long-term relationship for 20 years. You know, I honestly thought the next step was us being parents um, or, you know, coming to a very sort of life shattering uh, realization that um, actually work isn't the be all and end all. You do want something more meaningful and, you know, parenthood is, is something that you are prepared to think about doing on your own. Um, so it's the strength of these societally, I would say, unconscious stories that we've taken in. And of course, that they're absolutely there, aren't they? In all the fairy stories that we see and all the sort of Disney stories that we you know, expose our children to. And there may be very strong elements of that within our family scripts as well. Um, you know, being the oldest, for example, I'm the oldest of five, and I always assume that I would have lots of children. That's not how it's panned out. Um, but I think what often happens, Mel, is that when many of the women, and it is predominantly women that I see, um, who come to want to reconsider this story that they've been given, they get very involved in all the tasks involved. And that's often probably where you see them in the coaching. Um, and in, in sort of fertility terms, we have um, a little bit like the um, stages of grief that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross talks about. There's a very particular one that I talk about around fertility grief. And it involves the stages of sort of dawning. So a dawning realization that where you are in your life is not where you want to be and you want to do something different about that. And the next stage are the two stages I see people getting very involved in and maybe letting go of some of these more difficult feelings for a while. And they're the stages that we call mobilization and immersion. In other words, they get very busy, perhaps talking to the likes of yourself or me, going maybe to a clinic to find out what the actual procedure might be, you know, maybe looking online at donors. Um, so they get very mobilized towards a path. And that, of course, is a way that we often deal with difficulties in our lives, staying active, particularly, you know, for those that I often see, these are often very capable people, you know, with very good careers. They've often traveled the world on their own. They're very, very capable. So this is their tried and tested way of dealing with the realization that actually this reproductive story is going off piste slightly. And I think, I think it's really interesting because I think it's almost part of the problem. So many people I see are really successful, capable, independent women who are in control of everything in their lives. And this is one thing it's really difficult to control. And so you're like, how can I be, my career is going well, my life is going well, I've got a good house, I, I've got good friends, why can I not get into control of this? And it's something that is just, you're not fully in control of really. Um, and so I think that's why it can feel also very uncomfortable um, because you're not fully in control of it. Yeah, but I think the danger is that often 
there is a way of coping with uncomfortable feelings, which involves moving towards a goal, you know, working towards something that you have envisioned. And of course, these are two different steps in the path. One is the realization that the reproductive story you've held is not going to be the one. The next step is finding that new story and working towards it. However, the bit in between, of course, are the feelings that come with that. Why isn't this happening for me? What does this mean about me? How come so-and-so was able to settle down and have babies? How come? And, and this is in the area of disenfranchised grief. Um, because when you're deliberating, um, deliberate parenthood is what I call it, there is a loss of the spontaneity of just turning to a partner and saying, I don't know, shall, shall we try and get pregnant this month? There's the loss of baby making sex. There's the loss of um, a part of the story, again, that you will have unconsciously held, you know, being able to pee on a stick just because your period isn't there. That is a huge loss. And of course, many of the women you see and that I see are going to these clinics, possibly with a good friend, possibly with, you know, their mom or, you know, a support network. But what they're often unprepared for is the loneliness of what this can bring up the shame sometimes of sitting in the clinic but clearly not having a partner. And it can be the small things about going through a medical history because again, the other thing we have to say is that this is social infertility. You know, often these women aren't coming to the fertility clinic because they can't leave on their own. So this is a very particular type of loss. And I guess I know from questions, you know, you want us to focus on that we'll talk a bit more about that. But I think the danger is in going through each of these stages in the journey to finding this new um, story, this new um, path to parenthood, we skip over these very difficult bits of the experience. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think it's around um, sometimes we, we don't know why we're feeling a certain way, but one of the absolute things that I blame is rom-coms so I watched so many rom-coms when yeah. I was in my 20s and you know I didn't realize it at the time because it seems like hearted and it's just a bit of fun um but but I obviously associated happiness and success mm. with that ultimate goal of but you will then finally meet the right person and then life will be yeah. fine after that. And yeah. so many people I speak to say, if only I had a partner. And, and it's such a fantasy, I think, if only I had a partner, X, Y, and Z would happen. Because you think, well, it, that, it might happen, but it would also bring a lot of other challenges and it might not happen. And I used a, a random example on my Instagram account saying that I went to Ikea um, and the, the flat pack in Ikea is so heavy. I was like, how am I going to hoist it up yeah. into the boot? And some people have said, oh, you know, that's why I miss not having a partner. And I was like, if I had a partner, guarantee that this partner I would pick would not be coming to Ikea. They'd be like, no, <laughs> go to Ikea on your own. If you've decided you want some fancy shoe shelf, you go and get like, I, I, but it's so easy to fantasize that if I had a partner, um, it would be, my Ikea visits would be easier. I wouldn't be lonely, X, Y, and Z. And I think, how do we 
rewrite that story because it's so deeply embedded in us or certainly me it was it was so deeply embedded in me how can we get out that idea out of our heads okay so i'm going to take a slightly different approach which you okay. expect me to being <laughs> trained <laughs> for me that is it, it is all those ouch moments you know of, of turning up to the antenatal classes and you know the instructor saying, well, you know, contraception after you get, you know, and you're going, ouch, you know, there's those ouch moments that I call them. Yeah. But of course, the, the thing is, what we bring into this journey often when we're going down a path to parenthood that's different from others is, of course, our sense of difference. Now, what we then do with that sense of difference is we project it, as you say, if only I, you know, had a partner. But I think it also comes into if only I was a mother. So I think we bring projections into motherhood as well. Mm. This, unlike our careers, will give us the ultimate happiness. So I see it along a sort of a, a spectrum of fairy tales or projections is the word that I use in psychodynamic language in with us that unfortunately will have to get disappointed because it is actually about perhaps feelings of being the odd one out, feelings of, you know, why not me in terms of looking around our female friends and going, how come I wasn't the one to, you know, pick a partner that could hoist the shelf into the boot for me. Um, it can also tap into much earlier feelings around not being good enough or less than in our families, particularly in our family of origins. But it also comes with less helpful ideas, um, which is around, well, I can do this on my own, which is fantastic and needed if you're going to contemplate solo motherhood. But there will be moments, you know, and that's often where I'm helping people unpick the new fairy tale that they've created for themselves and saying, and when all is said and done at 3 a.m. and my mom had gone home for the weekend, it was just me and him. I felt completely overwhelmed. I didn't know what to do. I didn't realize motherhood was this hard. So I think there's almost, I would say the reality is that you're going to be constantly unpicking the fairy tale throughout your um, path to motherhood and beyond. And in a way, that's what we all have to do. Um, you'll know from you know, the bit of my account that talks about mothering that that is something I'm very passionate about. Um, alongside the rom-com, I think we're also sold fairy tale of motherhood. I fully agree. And actually so challenging for solo parents because they've, what I see quite often is we've unpacked it all. We've worked through it. We've said, okay, that's not the route for us. We're going to go down this route. We follow this route. We finally fulfill the dream of becoming yeah. a parent. And then it's really hard. And then we're like, hang on a minute. I can't complain about it because no. this is what I've been working towards for so long. And I can't tell anyone I feel this way because yeah. they'll be like, well, you brought it on yourself. This is what you wanted. And so it's so hard to, um, be honest about how you feel because you yeah. feel like you can't say it's that hard when it is yeah. when it is and it is for anyone but yeah. and it's and it's so lonely a place you know and and that's i think where what you offer is so crucial because when we're on the path that's different from others you know the path less traveled we, we have to find people along the way you know we have to find 
people who've done it the way we've done it um, or maybe feel the same feelings that we feel in order to feel assured and validated and that we're not going mad. Yeah. This is often where, you know, more difficult experiences like postnatal depression or, you know, maternal OCD do pop up. And we know that for solo parents, it is slightly higher than for those who have a partner. So across, I would say, 30 years of research that we've done into psychological issues as they arise in the perinatal period. So as I say, from conceiving through to one year post birth, there are two very robust variables and they are um, having a partner um, and having a lot of social stress. So in other words, what we know is really important is that you have a village and you're able to call on the village. But also what I often say, because I used to train midwives back in the day and was are you partnered would be on their list but of course just the fact that you have a partner is not the buffer <laughs> to poor mental health how involved is that partner so what i would say to people is these are realities when you're facing solo motherhood and um, they're also the, the the ouch moments beyond the fairy tale um that we have to be able to talk about and the other thing about this, and I put something on about solo parenting yesterday, is we need another mind. So we need other mothers to mother. You know, the relief of having someone at the end of a line or, you know, on the text message saying, oh, my God, today has been awful. Everything I thought I was going to do ended up this way. And you're great at showing that side of things, Mel, you know, on the grid. It's so important because... All you need sometimes someone to go, oh, my God, me too. And those me too moments where you feel she gets it or he gets it and you can have a little chat. And what the positivity of that is that you feel regulated again. You can go back indoors and, you know, continue with the rest of your day. For any of us doing parenting solo is not how we were built. We were built to mother and parent in groups. That's hardwired into our brains. And so it's really important that we understand that that's, it's not a failure to ask for help, particularly those of us who are very capable and very competent and very used to doing things on our own. If you're going to be a good enough solo mother, you have to get good at asking for help. So that's a good thing, I think, for everyone to practice, to know it can feel challenging, but it's worth practicing because the result of it is, is great. So um, it might feel uncomfortable the first time you do it because probably most of us aren't used to asking for help. No. Um, but when you do get that help, it's almost like embracing it and enveloping it in and thinking, yeah, I don't need to be proud or prove that no. I'm misindependent. I can just actually get my village around me helping me with this. So definitely good advice. And that it's needed. And in order to be a good enough mother, you know, I'm a solo parent now through divorce and I've taught about these things and, you know, talked about them as a psychologist, but oh my God, do I know them now? you know, in the last two years, I really cannot impress upon listeners more that if you're going down the path of, you know, choosing solo parenthood or solo motherhood, you must have a village. You must get over your shame, get over whatever feelings are uncomfortable, you know, I'm not good at this. Whatever that is, get practiced in putting those to one side and being honest and asking for help. 
And I think some people worry about that because they think, well, I haven't got a village. And that's why um, my, the favorite course that I run is called Preparing to Thrive. It's for pregnant solo mums. And you, we, we start off just by introducing ourselves. And what I say is for some people, they're like, okay, that's enough. I don't need any content. Just meeting 11 other people in my exact yes. situation is like, yippee. And exactly. honestly, it melts my heart because some Sometimes they send me pictures where they've then met, they've, they've had their children, they've met up, yeah. they're on the WhatsApp all the time. And Brilliant. it's exactly what you said. It is literally someone that you don't have to put a filter on with because they get what you're going through because they're in the same situation. And you've got your friends and they're really supportive, yeah. but these people really get it. And you don't have to pretend you can be yeah. really honest. And that's the thing I say at the beginning, this is a safe space. These are the people to share the realities with because they're all in the same position. And it's so powerful. Um, oh God, yeah. I mean, I, I will say if you can see it, you can be it. And I, I think in every transition in life, you know, whether that's coming to terms with having cancer or coming to terms with, you know, um, going down this route to, to solo parenthood. If you can see one other person who's done it and you can reach out and ask the questions that you dare not ask, you know, the other people around you who are all in these, you know, sort of nuclear type families, it's really, really helpful. But I think the other thing about this, Mel, that I wanted to, to speak about is that if we don't do this, we are passing something on to our children that is not very helpful for them. Um, it's really important that, you know, if we don't come to terms with some of these feelings of being less than, or, you know, if we don't have a story around the donor, um, if, if that's the route you've gone, or around, you know, the tummy mummy, if you've gone down the road of adoption, or wh whatever your story is, if we, haven't started to process those we inevitably pass those feelings unconscious unresolved feelings onto our children people say to me really you know are you sure and and you know i'll do a lot of work with um, becky around this and our donor conception um children we're essentially what we're having to do is manage difference for our children and it's often not perhaps until they start nursery or school when they do that inevitable, you know, draw your family, that nice innocuous little <laughs> task they do on the first day in primary school, that suddenly something comes up for these children. And unless they've read the storybooks with you, seen other families like yours, um, been able to see, and now there's much more representation in film and cartoons, thankfully as well, that they then bring your unresolved feelings of shame, of being less than, of something missing with them into the classroom or into their relationships with others. I think this is so important because for the podcast, I've also interviewed lots of donor conceived people um, that were brought up by solo parents. And one of the absolute themes that all of them have said is their parents spoke to them about their situation with such pride, such confidence. Um, and that absolutely has been instilled into them. And then yeah. that's how they feel. And yeah. they all said that if they had got any feeling that their parents felt ashamed of it or not confident that that would undoubtedly have yeah. impacted them. So I um, 
also have just started a course called Solo Parent Conversations to address this exact mm. topic. And the first week is all about you can't have an effective conversation if you're still clinging on to unresolved grief and issues yourself. And actually what I've said is there's some simple exercises to try to work through that. But if you're really Mm. can't let go of it that would be a good time to speak to someone like yourself to try to work through letting go of some of that yeah absolutely and I think the thing that I'd sort of impress upon anybody listening is that this isn't a linear progression you know grief and it's funny it pops up at different times that you could possibly get through you know to use the the language I've used earlier um, in the conversation through the you know immersion stage get pregnant, come through, have a wonderful postpartum experience. But it might just be at that point where perhaps, perhaps, you know, one of your sisters or one of your friends or indeed one of your other solo mom friends thinks about going again, you know, going back and perhaps having a second child. But suddenly this grief hits you because it might be about your age and stage of life or it might be that point where, you know, a very good friend who has been, you know, um the, the main support to you you fall out with them or you know it, it can be something very little that sort of causes us to fall back into earlier stages of grief and so i would say to people it's not going to be linear you will feel grief potentially the whole way through and um, there's often that anxiety isn't there as our children get older and as they move away from us um we can start to feel less fulfilled or we can find you know mothering more challenging and so I would really say to people this isn't a case that you sort of deal with these griefs and move on forevermore they may pop up when you least expect them life often has a way of bending us out of shape when we least expect it but I think what's key a couple of things is psychological flexibility so knowing that oh okay this has come back up for me again. What's going on? What's happening? Who can I talk to about this? Number two, being honest with yourself. Um, you know, it's, it's important that you have a sense of when things maybe aren't quite on the right page. Are you looking after yourself enough? It's key as a solo parent. Are you, as I often say, you know, filling your cup before trying to fill your child's or fill you know, the cup at work or whatever, are you filling your own cup? Are you looking after your own self-care? Is there someone that you could lean out to and, and speak about what's going on? Because chances are they will probably have a similar experience. And the other key thing I would say to solo parents is have friends who are not just in the same boat as you, but who may be in a boat further on than you. <laughs> So who have, you know, children or a child slightly older than yours, because that can be very reassuring as well. Yeah, it's so true. And I think um, just in terms of being honest with yourself, that's something that really hit me because when I, I so vividly remember the feelings and this is years ago now but I remember where I was who I was with and really really clear feelings of failure which at that point I would definitely not have wanted to say out loud I wouldn't have wanted to share with anyone but just thinking how can I be failing so badly in this area when I when I've got everything else under control why does nobody 
want to do this path to parenthood with me? Why can I not figure it out? And, and the big thing I remember feeling was um, not wanting to be different. Why can't I just have a normal, in inverted commas, experience? Yeah. I don't want to have to tell everybody that this is the route I'm going down because I've got to explain it. And, um, yeah. but, but when I did work through those feelings, that's now how I've got through the other side. So I think what you said about being honest with yourself and really trying to figure out what is it that you're feeling can be really helpful for people for sure. Yeah, and, and, it, and it is painful. But I, I think, you know, there is something about parenting that throws up, you know, that reflects parts of you. It, it's that moment where you think of it all tied up in a blue bow and then your child comes up and goes, well, why don't I have a daddy? Or where is my daddy? And suddenly, poof, or, you know, why don't I have a brother and sister? And of course, these things come up for parents who are in, you know, heteronormative relationships. Um, but not to the same intent, not at the same intensity, and usually not linked to the same, as you say, echoes back to having to go down a path that's different from others. Um, so I hope those key words help people understand that, you know, you may go down this road and you may have made your peace with it, but chances are, you know, you will feel different things at different times because parenting is not static. Our children are not static. You know, they move and grow. And, you know, personally speaking, it might be about your child reaching puberty or, you know, that stage, as I say, where actually you would, if you were in a relationship, perhaps be contemplating another child, but perhaps not being able to go back to that all you've gone through to have this child again. So secondary infertility is definitely something that solo mothers feel and experience. And fertility trauma as well, because that's the link for me with the grief. Why did I have to do it like this? And I think those two examples you've given are, are brilliant because they absolutely both apply to me. So I would say I've done lots of work. I feel very confident about this. I talk very confidently about mm. it. I've worked through a lot of my issues. But then mm. when my daughter says, I wish I had a daddy, however much work I've done, I'm still like, ah. Um, yeah. But what I say <laughs> to people is, you've got to do the work so you can deal with that situation yeah. so now if she says it I'm like because if if your child says that to you and you're like oh gosh oh I'm so you know and you're mm. and they can see that that's put you into a spin mm. what you said earlier I'm sure applies then that they must pick up on that yeah so yeah. it's almost about preparing yourself for they probably will say that at some point mm. or, or or something similar that will be like a dagger to your heart yeah how can you get prepared so that mm. they see your reaction as very calm everything's normal yeah. there's no you know um rather than it sending you into a spin i think is um something i've noticed but again i'm going to just say another little bit to this because i think the compassion and, and this is what's quite unique about solo parenting you're trying to make sense of these things often when you're in it yeah that's the equivalent of you being in water slowly noticing that actually you're out of depth and having to save your child and yourself at the same time this is a big psychological task we do ourselves so please please be kind to yourself there will be days where your little one will ask that question and you'll go what and that's fine you won't be able to pull it all together in your head but the important thing is the repair 
go back and say, you know what, you know, when you asked mommy that question, I'm sorry, my head was somewhere else. I was trying to get my work done for the deadline. Remember I told you about that person that needs the work that mommy does. I, let's talk again about it. You know, none of these things are, and I think that's the other thing I often hear from solo parents, the danger that they're going to mess their kids up. You know, no. What you model is right now, I haven't got a clue. Let me come back to you. I've worked it out of my head. Let's have a chat about it. And to demand anything more of yourself is frankly not fair. You know, this is how parenting is for most parents. They have to sort of work out meanings, work out things in their head whilst they're parenting. I love that. I love that advice. I'm constantly having to apologize for being a bit too shouty. <laughs> I, I'm like, you know, I'm really sorry that mummy was a little bit shouty sometimes when yeah. we're in a bit of a rush. Or, so I'm constantly having to backtrack on that one. But that that's yeah. really good advice. Um, I think that would be really helpful for people because you're exactly right. The common fears people share with me is I've made this decision. It was selfish. I'm going to mess my child up. And now they're asking about it and I can't even give them a good answer. So um, actually thinking if I don't give a good answer in the moment, that's fine. I can go back to it. I think it's really, really good advice. Absolutely. The other thing for me was what you said about secondary infertility. That's definitely the other thing that's been difficult yeah. for me. On my antenatal group, when you when everyone's announcing their second, and I very, very rarely think what it would be like if I had a partner. But that's one thing where I thought, I'm sure I would have tried for a second if I had a partner. It's, it's yeah. just, it is what it is. Um, and you've almost like, I see a lot of people going through the cycle twice because they've gone through it yeah. once. They are a solo parent. Then they're almost back to the beginning thinking, well, if I had a partner, I'd be having two and they have to work through the whole thing again. And you just think, oh gosh, this is exhausting. Or accept that, for, for different reasons it's just not going to be possible and that's the fairy tale again isn't it my fairy tale was I was going to have two children um yeah. and, and and probably that's not the case and so it's rewriting it and um you know doing yeah that. And, and that's a life's work rewriting the story yeah. over and over and over and you know our children contribute to that and they will write the story we hand it on to them they write their own version of the story yeah and of course, there's the wider story they'll carry in in a, an intergenerational way as well. But the other thing around um, stories that are different, and I've actually had worked with two moms now with twins. And I think that's the, the other stories within the solo parenting story are women of colour coming to this on their own and solo mo mothers with multiples. I don't think we're seeing enough or hearing enough from them and they have very particular well sense of difference um and also sense of loss and grief um i worked with a woman about two years ago who really struggled with twins and she said this wasn't what i had imagined um i actually wanted just one baby and felt terrible guilt about that um so I guess what I'm hoping I'm pressing upon whoever's listening is that the difference and the, the grief will turn up in different ways. 
Uh, fully agree and I think that's the other advantage of the solo parent community so um, one of the things that um, I mean I'm in a lucky position that I know a lot of people who are going through this so we'll know all the different sort of elements and um, pulling together smaller groups so we've got a twin solo parent group because as much as solo parents are a great group if you're friends with twin solo parents you're like yeah. oh, they really really get it um, and um, I think that one of the things that I've noticed is that uh, personally, I think it will be great for our children because, again, on the whole, not wanting to be different. If you've got a, a group of friends who are in the same family setup situation as you, yeah. I, I talked to my um, daughter about it. I said, oh, we're seeing our friends and X, Y or Z person. They haven't got a daddy. Um, they had a donor as well. And she's like, mm. oh, right. Like, that's super yeah. Yeah, so, so important. Yeah, I think that people, you know, seeking out other people, particularly local to you, where your children can feel like they're in a similar situation. I, I, every donor conceived adult I spoke to said they didn't have that, but they would have given anything to have it. And I think yeah. that's changing now because more people are connecting, aren't they? Definitely, and and children need a village too. You know that they. They need us to have a village so that we can be regulated and we can, you know, go through some of these things with others who understand what we're doing. But they need a little village of, you know, of others as well. Yeah, I think what's interesting, um, you all know a lot more about this, but what you said before around our children will know, even though we think they don't. Um, do children just pick up on our sort of like unresolved stuff? Is that what is that what you're referring to? Or um, I guess that we have a again a phrase for it. It's called ghosts in the nursery, and and it is that place where again I'm Irish, so we're very good at um, stories and leaving things out of stories <laughs> in Ireland. Grief and trauma often resurfaces when it's not been um, addressed or resolved. So in other words, you know, if we have some feelings of shame, some feelings of hesitation, if we're constantly, and again, you know, it's, it's very hard to say this because of course I'm 20 years now doing this and not too long ago, you were actually advised not to tell, you know, to actually concoct a different story. So, you know, it's, it's very, it's amazing that we've moved on in 20 some years to now telling children and being very open with them. However, I often go back to Ireland and do workshops and um, there's still this privacy versus secrecy thing. Um, and inevitably what happens is that creates, I would say an atmosphere. Um, I think the truth is that most of this can't be secret. You know, we, we know, for example, for people doing, um, online DNA testing and so on and so forth. So I think the more, the more you've unraveled the story for yourself and picked through and felt the ouch moments and dealt with them. And, you know, it's not to say they're never going to come back, but they, one thing I can say to you is they come back with less intensity. And um, if you're not doing that for whatever reason, unfortunately it is and has often been my experience that these things do come back to bite us in the bum later on. And um, when our children inevitably, you know, do find out more about their story from others or from online or whatever. And I don't think that's a legacy we want to hand on to our children. I just don't think it's helpful. 
No, and it's really interesting what you're talking about um, privacy versus secrecy, because um, we were having this conversation with some of my solo mum friends because uh, they were saying to me, you know, for example, I haven't told my neighbours that I'm a solo mum through donor conception because, you know, that's not their business. And I was like, oh, I've told my neighbours. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and we and we were saying, you know, some of it is personality, just like I'm a massive yeah. overgara. But one of my things is as well, I don't want people to wonder what my circumstances mm. are. Do you know what I mean? I want yeah. them, I want to proudly say this is the circumstance. I don't want them going home saying, oh, I wonder, you know, what the situation yeah. is. So um, that's why I feel like I share at a very high level, I don't go into loads of detail, but when I meet people, usually I say, oh yes, it's just my daughter and I, you know, I had her on my own as a solo parent. But I think some people feel like that's not other people's business. It's a hard balance, isn't it? Because yeah, it's not their business, but I'm, I'm fine. Yeah, I, I would, I mean, I would guess that maybe they're still at the stage of trying to work it out for themselves. Mm -hmm. And, and I think we have, got time you know that's the other thing I often say is it will take time you have got time but I would be really worried if if we were still hedging our bets on those types of issues mm. when our children come up to you know three and four and five because that's when children really do take a cue from us as to how they present themselves in the world and we know that around racial difference we know that around you know disability um difference in terms of being, uh, you know, having two moms who are gay or whatever the setup is, that is often when they need us to proudly hold their hand and say, well, th this is who we are. This is me, this is Daisy. This is what we do. This is, you know, setup. Because if we don't model something like that, what are we modeling? And, and that is where, you know, they then carry that on as part of their legacy. And, and I don't think that's fair. So it all keeps coming back really then to our own confidence with, yes. with, with our story of conception. So the more yes. we can work on that and work through our issues, the easier I think a lot of these things sound like they'll be. Absolutely. Amazing. So if anybody wants more help working through any of these unresolved <laughs> issues, um, where can they find you and the work that you do? Okay, so online, I'm on Instagram and Facebook at Parenthood in Mind. We have a very hopefully helpful website, um, www.parenthoodinmind.co.uk. And if you want to come through there, there's an online form you'd fill out. You give a little bit of information about what you want support with. And you'll then come through to Katie, our very capable team administrator, who'll talk to you a little bit about, you know, what you need and what sort of approach you're looking for, along with sort of logistics around when it's best to see somebody. Currently, we're offering mostly online, but previous to the pandemic, we, we had really well-appointed uh, places to see people across the UK. So we have people in Manchester, um, Norfolk, Devon, and in central London. And we are really hopeful that come the summer, we're going to be back in, um, in real life again. And, and hopefully, if people feel that that would be of help, we would be more than happy to support you with it. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much. Really, really interesting chat, and I'm sure will be helpful for so many. So thanks for your time. Thanks so much, Mel. Thank you. Bye now. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, it'd mean a lot to me if you'd take a few minutes to rate, review, and subscribe. If you'd like to learn more of what's on offer at The Stalking Eye, 
head over to my website, thestalkandi.com, or follow me on Instagram at thestalkandi with underscores between the words. You can hear more about the coaching I offer, as well as hear from donor-conceived adults, industry experts, and the opportunity to meet and become a part of the Solo Motherhood community.